Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me via Zoom, is my friend Colby Majors. Welcome to the podcast, Colby. Thank you so much, Richard. This is going to be a tender podcast. As Colby and I said a prayer, we pray that Colby will be able to share the things in his heart that will be helpful for you. Um, Colby is um, in his mid-30s. He um, is a convert of the church, baptized at age 17, served a mission. That mission ended a little short just because of anxiety and depression. But I count Colby as a full return missionary. He served with honor and distinction. Colby has a graduate degree. Tell our listeners what your master's degree is in, Colby. Uh, my, uh, sorry, <laughs> Um, my degrees in counseling and human services, I received that from the uh, University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. I became aware of Colby through our joint friend, Andy Proctor. Colby came out as gay on social media. I think it was a Facebook video that I saw, listened to one morning that our joint friend, Andy Proctor sent us. Andy's a good guy. And, um, then that led to this podcast we're now recording. Some of these podcast listeners we do, or someone comes on and they're kind of at the end of their story as a as an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint, and they're able to look back on their life and tell their whole story. But a lot of these podcasts, somebody's in the middle of their story, and, and Colby's right in the middle of difficult chapters of his life. And um, Colby came out, um, this, we're recording this in the fourth quarter of 2021, I think in the third quarter of 2021 is when Colby came out. He's been married for 15 years. Um, that has led to Colby and his wife separating, and that is likely leading to a divorce. Divorce proceedings have started. Colby no longer lives at home and is working through the divorce proceedings and joint custody of their daughter. So this is a coming out story that's led to a marriage ending and led to just difficult chapters for Colby and his former wife. And um, Colby may not know exactly how this is all going to work out for him, and there's a lot of pain involved. Um, but Colby, I just felt it would be wonderful for Colby to share his story, even though parts of his story are complete, but parts of his story aren't complete. And our joint prayer is this is helpful to you. If you're LGBTQ and you're looking for stories, this will be another story. I think Colby will share some things that are helpful for you. If you're an active Latter-day Saint who's just trying to better understand and support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, I think Colby will be, have some insights. And if you're involved in a marriage that's ending and you're kind of in one family or the other, often that's a difficult time to sort of try to support both parties if it's possible. And I've always thought that um, if possible, we should give grace to both parties as a marriage is ending and not try to find a villain or a hero but just recognize that some marriages end and, and do our best to love both people as they're making their way forward then as separate partners. Is that okay for an introduction, Colby? Yeah, it's actually pretty solid, Richard. So I've shared a few tears before we went live, and I just, this is a good guy. Um, talk about, I don't know where you want to start, you know, I, you, we often start where you first recognized you were attracted yeah. to men, so maybe you can start there. Okay. Um, at the time, I lived with my dad uh, in middle school. This was about between 97 and 98. I lived with my dad because 
he was absent most of my life. I didn't really meet him until I was about nine years old and he just wanted to jump into the father figure role. And instead of creating any type of relationship at the beginning, it was kind of full fledged uh, dad mode. Um, and it was all shocking to me. I had, I've, I've had a really intense childhood, a lot of abuse, um, mostly verbal and emotional. So it was kind of a rocky start. So when I was a teenager, I moved with my dad uh, because I had I didn't have the best grades growing up. So he kind of wanted to take over. And he was dealing with his own mental health issues. And at the time, I didn't really understand what those were. Um, so it was kind of a scary situation for me to be in this home and then not really knowing how to adapt. Um, but I remember just having these feelings of, you know, I'm kind of an awkward teenager anyway. So I don't, I'm right in the, the, the cusp of puberty and it's kind of all emotions and everything were all over. But I remember growing up, I was very much aware of my appearance, very much aware of how I wanted to present myself. You know, teenagers at that age, don't really care how they look. They just kind of throw things together and just out the door. But I would just, I would spend hours getting ready just because I wanted to look my best self. Um, and I remember on several occasions, my dad would call me a sissy or you're such a girl um, or other uncalled names. Um, and I took that deeply because I just thought that I was, that was normal taking my sweet time. Um, but I was about 14 when I was not, of not, I'll spare details, but I remember just being in, in the locker room after gym and I just kind of this weird kind of excitement feeling I've had and I wasn't sure what to do with it. And so I just kind of shoved it down in my emotions and wasn't sure how to approach it try to have girlfriends because that's what normal teenage boys do is how they, you know, they have girlfriends. And so I would try to go out with girls, but the majority of my friends were female. And so I just felt more comfortable around that. And again, my dad would make comments about it. He would say hurtful things about like, Oh, you're so girly. And why would you, where are your guy friends? You know, why don't we put you in sports or send you to scouts that way you can be around boys your age. And I didn't struggle with that, but I would also find ways to go hang out with my friends, but the majority of them were girls um, or female. And I, I, that's where I thrived. I thrived being around the opposite sex because I felt comfortable with myself. I felt I didn't have to pretend or I didn't have to try too hard. Um, it just felt, felt right. But most of my childhood anyway, growing up, um, I have a lot of female cousins and I would spend hours with them as they got ready for the day. I would get into watching them put on their makeup and getting ready for the day. And I know that doesn't necessarily constitute someone being gay, but for me, it just, again, it felt, it felt right. It felt comfortable. Um, that has kind of led me into, um, theater and performing and arts and just being more, in that kind of environment, mostly because again, it just comes back down to being 
comfortable within myself and not worry about what others think. That was my outlet. That was my way of uh, coping with my anxiety and my depression or just finding something that brought positivity to my life. That's, that's what I found in, in all of that. I just kind of described. So yeah, I was, I was 14 when I started feeling this and I was afraid to talk to my dad. He's very much a manly man. Um, he was kind of a scary individual. And so I was afraid to open up about something like this would, would cause or turn into anger or lashing out on me in some form or fashion. So I just stuffed it away. Doing a good job of telling your story. That's pretty honest. And we appreciate you men of a lot of honesty and integrity as I listen to your Facebook video. Talk about joining the church and serving a mission. And, and was any of that tied up into your sexual orientation and trying to be straight or fit in? So, um, while I was living with my dad, my mom, stepdad, and sisters moved to Colorado. Um, towards the end of ninth grade, I ended up moving back. So this was 99. And in Colorado, I was, was there for my sophomore and junior year of high school. Some had complications had happened in our family where we were evicted from our home and we were, I wouldn't say forced, but we didn't know where else we wanted to end up as a family. And so we came back to Utah. Um, I'm from uh, Emory County, Huntington, Utah. That's where all of our family's at. And so we moved back there right in the middle of my junior, senior of high school. So when I came back, I was really excited to see all the people that I grew up with because I hadn't seen them in years. All my friends I went to elementary school with and part of junior high with. And so it was really fun to reminisce and just talk about our childhood and just, it was really exciting. Um, so that was, let's see, like the beginning of the school year of 2002 when we moved back and all my friends are members, people, you know, talking about going on missions and getting missions and these sort of things. And I wanted that. I wanted to, to be a part of that, that kind of cultural group. Um, my stepdad, he was taking the discussions at the time and missionaries would come visit our family and we would have lessons together as a family. I knew my mom wanted that. She wanted to be active again. And so my stepdad joined the church at the end of 2002. And I was kind of at this weird teenager phase. I knew what I wanted, but I was stubborn. I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go towards. And I remember working at a grocery store. And there was this girl there that I, I really liked. I, she was attractive. She was sweet and kind. And, um, I shared this in a Facebook post several weeks ago about it, but I, I joined the church because of her. Um, and that may seem completely like randomized or not fully intent of joining the church because I wanted to, but because she was sweet and kind to me. And I, I wanted that. I wanted to be a part of something like that. And so, um, the missionaries would come over to give discussions and 
oftentimes I would say I wasn't home or didn't answer the door. I was kind of a punk teenager <laughs> and I felt really bad, but I, again, I wasn't sure what I wanted out of this. Um, so it was finally, I want to say the beginning of or the middle of March of 2003, when I finally kind of just brought it together and was excited to do this. And I saw prog this progression within my parents and I was like, this is what I want. This is what I want to do. So it was April, 2003 general general conference weekend when I was baptized, when I joined the church, 17 years old. So a little over a month before I turned 18 and graduated from high school. Um, and then we spent that year getting ready as a family to go to the temple. Um, I had to get permission from my dad to be still to my stepdad. And that was his birthday gift to me. was giving me that permission. So it was May 18th of 2004 when, sorry, this, like thinking back to that moment was pretty powerful. Um, but we went to the Manti temple, my mom, stepdad and myself received our endowments. And, uh, I have two younger sisters. My youngest sister, uh, she was still to the three of us. Uh, we have a middle sister who wasn't, still hasn't been baptized or anything, but I remember going through the endowment session, um, going through the bell into the celestial room. And I remember I was waiting for my mom. I was the first one through. And I remember seeing my mom come through the veil and just, it was a glorious experience. And I knew right there in that moment that this was going to last forever. Like a legitimate eternal family. Like we made it this far. We can make it to the rest of our lives together and into eternal life. Um, three months later, I went on my mission. I served in the Barcelona, Venezuela mission. I was out a total of 10 months, just shy of 10 months. When I started getting really sick, um, with separation, anxiety, the depression, um, it was to say it was difficult as a, as a vast understatement. It, it was, it was strenuous and it was hard. And I'm, I'm the only one in my entire family to serve a mission. And so that was definitely an adventure. Um, but I got, really ill and I lost a ton of weight and I'm a skinny guy anyway. And so it got pretty bad. So June, 2005 is when I was released and came home and right back into that small community. I felt, I felt, um, I felt that it was just another level of this guilt and shame that I had felt since I was 14. I came home early um, people are going to start talking. People are going to start asking questions. Luckily, I didn't hear anything. So that kind of was a catalyst into like, all right, this is fine. Like I can move on to my next phase of life. And I went right back into college and moved about a half an hour away and attended school. And then November of 2004, that's when I met Leslie. And I knew in that moment, I was like, this is who I'm going to marry. This is who, this is right. This is perfect. Um, this is what I need to do to get into that next part of my life. And kind of fast forward a bit. We were married September of 2006. 
Um, and that's those checkpoints that I hit. Like if I do this and if I do this and if I do this, this will go away and I'll be fine. I can manage life. And I didn't realize in that moment that I was, I was lying to myself and secretly had kept that quiet for 15 years. Well, and then the additional years that I, since I was 14, so the last 23 years of my life, I've really just sucked it in and tucked it in a box and hid it away in my soul for, for so long. <laughs> that was a lot. So then, thanks for listening. <laughs> behalf of our listeners, we just thank you for being so open and vulnerable and courageous and sharing your story, Colby. Talk about your, you know, 15 years removed from your mission and you had a lot of anxiety. I don't know if there's a way to answer this. How much of that do you, was it related to just separation anxiety and kind of traditional um, emotional challenges that come to all faithful missionaries or most? And how much of that was related to just navigating your sexual orientation and sort of having that be at the root of, was that at the root of a lot of these sort of anxiety and depression I guess another way of saying this, if you were straight on your mission, would you, would you have been able to serve longer? And I don't know if those are answerable. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm the only one in my family to have gone on a mission. And I've, I felt that I was the one keeping my family together. And so after I joined the church and we were still in the, like, missionaries would ask me to challenge my sister. Like, as you're preparing to go on a mission, you know, read, read the book of Mormon with your sister, pray with your sister, the one that didn't, wasn't baptized. And I felt like I was putting in, in a lot of work, um, as, a, as a son, as a, as a brother, my parents, I didn't feel a lot of direction coming from them on that, on that facet. So I felt like I had to take on all this responsibility to get my sister to join the church. Um, and so as I was preparing to leave, I felt um, this, like the, this added weight as I'm in the MTC. And so this was still the time where families came into the MTC, you watch the video and then you separate. And all my return missionary friends were like, do not look back when you, when the movie is done, when the video is done, just go to the right and don't look back. And so I had to like mentally and emotionally prepare myself not to look at my family as they were leaving. And I remember standing up ah, <laughs> and I, I did, I glanced back at my mom and I just like sobbed. Um, and I felt that as I was leaving, that my family is just going to be, just fall apart. That spiritually going to church, all these things. And it's really interesting because I called home for Christmas and surely enough, this was four months later. I called home for Christmas and I was talking to my stepdad and he said to me, he's like, well, we're just, we're starting to go back to church. The keyword starting. And I was completely floored. And I was like, what do you mean? Like 
what's been going on these last four months that I've been gone. And they, they didn't have an answer for me. They just stopped going to church entirely. And so when I came home the following June, um, I found out that my stepdad was unfaithful to my mom and that's a whole nother layer. But to answer your questions, when, when I, we were physically separated in the MTC, all of my kind of like childhood trauma and all of my, this connection that I have with my mom that I thought I'm not going to see her for two years. And she's going to be a wreck. Like if I'm a wreck, she's a wreck because we're emotionally connected. And that's when my separation anxiety was triggered. And then the, the depression afterwards. Um, and the two months that I was in the, in the MTC, you know, we, the, we watched a video by Ella Holland called don't you dare go home. And here I am having this internal battle of, I want to be home because of my family But just remembering, um, so when I joined the church, I wasn't completely honest in my baptismal interview about things I had done before joining the church, uh, experimenting with friends and not living righteously enough to join the church. But I knew if that's what I wanted to do, I just had to keep that quiet and go on a mission because I wanted those feelings to go away. So a lot of that was struggling internally and spiritually because I thought to myself, you're a sinner. Like you're on a mission. You got baptized. You went through this whole process, got ready for a mission. But there are a lot of things that you didn't take care of before you left. And I just kept that quiet. I kept quiet of that uh, same-sex attraction, if you want to call it, or being attracted to men quiet because I was afraid to be honest about it. And because I was afraid and I projected fear onto being ostracized or looked down or looked at differently because I didn't go on a mission. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of underlying things to that part of my story, but I went because I had to like, if I wanted this gayness to go away, that's what I had to do to do it. You're doing a good job of um, sort of connecting a lot of dots in your story of what was going on. It's pretty complex when <laughs> it's not just one dimensional, Colby, that this is sort of the bottom of your iceberg. It's this single issue that was sort of caused, but there's a lot of components of your story. And I think that's true of a lot of us in the human family. There's Life is really complicated and and sometimes in Mormon culture, we project this ideal perfectionist, everything's fine. But a lot of us have got really complicated stuff. And culturally, it's sometimes hard to be open about that. You've done that and are doing that right now, but it helps us. And um, I, I want to get to the rest of your story, but what would you, so you've got 15 years of experience since your mission. You came home with all these probably emotions as you've landed back in the States, what would you, this is your older self now talking to your younger self <laughs> as you came home, what would you, what would you say to your younger self? And this is kind of you talking to 
early release missionaries or people just dealing with complicated stuff? It's, it's really interesting that you asked that because the, so after I came out to my wife, this is the beginning of August. Um, I ended up staying at a friend's house for a few days and they've gone through some pretty intense stuff in their life too. And, um, her and her husband opened their home to me as long as I needed to be there. And one of the mornings I had slept maybe three hours a night prior. So my, obviously my emotions are heightened. My energy level is crashing severely. And I go on her front porch and I'm, I'm going to apologize now to try to get through this. Um, I sat on her porch and she came out to sit with me and we're just taking in the summer air, the beautiful morning, the beautiful Wasatch mountains that are right there in front of us and just kind of like taking in life. And she said something to me really profound. She said, I want you to do this exercise with me. I want you to close your eyes and Picture yourself from these past 15 years. And what would you say to him? So I, gosh. So I closed my eyes and uh, like pictured holding hands with him. And I, I told him, I said to him, I said, you've been through so much, so much trauma in your childhood, separation, a lot of pain, uncertainty of what life's going to look like, trying to maintain a relationship with my dad, with, with my dad. Okay. And so... Yeah, so losing to my dad and granddad to suicide and contemplating my own and trying to maintain now where I am at. Um, like, I'm still the same person. I haven't changed. I still care deeply for people. But anyway, I looked at myself from these past 15 years and... Um, I told him that I loved him. I told him that I am grateful for him, for the life that he has lived and led for these last 15 years. I pictured embracing myself and not wanting to let go because of how hard that was just to imagine letting go. And I, I looked at him in the eyes and I said, I love you. I'm grateful for you and it's time to go. It's time to go. 
And doing that process was so difficult because I was so comfortable living a life trying to be as genuine as possible with different aspects of my life, but not ready to fully embrace and accept this. But as I did, as I let him go, and after a lot of tears and mess, I began to really just feel all of that just release. And it's not over. It's still a process. Um, I've actually had to do that a few more times just to like, as I'm re like, as I'm integrating different things of, of this separation, this divorce process that I'm going through, that we're going through, <clears throat> still trying to live my life, trying to get back on my feet financially. Um, plans of what I want to do in the future for, for myself, for my daughter. And so it's, it's a heavy, heavy process, but I'm, I did it and I'm doing it because this is what I need. And this is what I need to do for my daughter. It's a great segment. Talk about, um, you got married, um, you were married about 15 years. Share with our listeners, why you decided to come out to your wife? Um, at the beginning of the year, well, back in April this year, I attended a retreat called One Heart, One Light. It was a men's retreat, and it was my first ever retreat uh, for men work, for my work. And it was a pretty decently sized group of men that were there and the age ranged from 19, 18 to about, I think the oldest gentleman was about in his seventies. And we were there to um, work through our, our own lives, but also maintain and or continue to create a solid relationship with our savior. And then Part of it also was to network with other men to have that support group. And I remember getting there. I was nervous. I only knew one person. Um, I had some trepidation, nothing in a negative lighting, but it was new. It was a new experience. And it was about a two and a half day retreat and we did several exercises to talk about projecting our fear or our anger or happiness or joy or sadness onto other people. And I went in knowing what I wanted was what I hoped for. Um, but there were some exercises where we, where I worked through the fear of, ending up like my dad and granddad uh, with my mental health. Um, and that fear turned into anger uh, towards them. Um, anger towards the adversary. Uh, myself, because I felt like I wasn't 
doing my best or trying hard enough to um, get through my mental health. And so I went through this retreat. It's about a week later. I had a conversation with my wife at the time and I told her straight out that if I do not take care of my mental health right now, my biggest fear is that you and Aria will leave me. And she got really upset about it. Um, and from that point, mid April to August, I could just feel this pressure building. Just something was just, one of us was going to just snap. And so I met friends that helped me process through this. I helped my mom came out to my mom at the beginning of June. She helped me kind of work through this. And so finally I just, it's cliche, but I felt like a pressure cooker was just going to just burst. And so I, I told her, I sent her a text message a few hours before I got off of work one night. And I said, there are some things that I would like to talk about. Um, when I get home, it was late, uh, two days prior to that, I typed out what I wanted to say. And so that night it was August 2nd, just a few months ago, two and a half months ago, I sat her down and I read word for word what I wanted to say or what I had written out. And afterwards she sat for a moment and she said, I knew something was going on, but I didn't, I didn't know it was this, or I didn't realize it was this and I can't do this right now. And so, yeah, she got up and she walked away rightfully. So like after almost 15 years of marriage, I just came out of left field and the reason why I did that was because she deserved to know and I deserved to start living my life how I needed to live it to be true to myself and to be true to who I am as an individual and as a son of God. And I tried years and years just to get rid of it and it just wouldn't relent. So I felt like by doing this was not a way out, but as a way to begin to live my life that I waited for 23 years to live. Thank you, Colby, for sharing really tender um, situations. Did you um, hope or believe that this, your marriage would end in divorce if you came out or was your hope that um, your marriage could survive or grow with this part of you being known or did you just not know? I, I, I truthfully, I, I didn't know. I, my deepest hope was to find a way to make it work. I know quite a few men who are in mixed orientation marriages and somehow they are making it work. And I, that, like I said, that was my hope. That was my deepest hope. And her biggest fear was, yeah, if we would have worked on it, her fear would have been if I would eventually leave for a man. I didn't have an answer to that. But if I had somehow, yeah, secretly and holding on to this for 15 years, now being open about it would find like, okay, let's, let's do something. Let's work together. Let's meet with a therapist and meet with our bishop and just managed it. And 
that was not that obviously that's not where we're at. That's not what she wanted. Listeners, I know the answer to this question because we talked about it beforehand, but it's probably good for you to know the answer to this question. Were you unfaithful during these 15 years? I was not. I was not. I mean, yeah, I struggled with pornography, masturbation. It was a struggle. It was a struggle. Um, And I was completely honest and open with her about it. And that scared her because, you know, that I'm taking away from her. Um, but not once, not once did I, was I unfaithful or any type of adultery. And I had hoped that would be like, uh, uh, a jump off or something that would be like, I worked through this for 15 years. I hope that this would motion us into working and coming together and, and figuring it out. And so listeners, this is a marriage that's not going to survive um, unless something dramatic happens. It seems like um, divorces proceedings have started. You're um, not with each other. And um, it's just the reality of some marriages. And um I don't think there was an intent here on either of your part to have this marriage end. It just became the reality of the situation. I, Colby, before we went live, extended a lot of grace to his wife, soon to be former wife. And I asked him how angry he is at different groups of people. And Colby didn't go down the anger road. I sent somebody who's trying to not become angry at anybody and even though he feels a lot of pain and hurt is not trying to project that on the on god the church his former wife and just trying to you know use the gospel of jesus christ and the teachings of christ to extend grace and kindness in really difficult situations and it's and i admire your grace and there's probably pain and anger and where you've you know, not been your best and your former wife has not been her best. And, but it just, it's just a tough situation. I wrote about this. I'm not sure I've read this on the podcast, but this is from my book on page 266. I hope it's okay, Colby, if I read a little bit, is that okay? Yeah, Yeah, that's fine. Some mixed orientation marriages fail and Colby has been in one of those, just like some straight marriages fail. And in any divorce situation, we should just mourn a marriage end and resist placing blame on either partner, concluding as was because of one's sexual orientation or gender identity. While we have a natural tendency to try to discover why a marriage fails or who is most at fault, I encourage us to resist this. Maybe finding those reasons is our way of assuring that our marriages will not fail, but it may prevent us from filling our baptism covenants not to judge and to born marin born marin. Well, I'm mixing words there, mourn, bear, and comfort. Maintaining any marriage can be difficult. And while those in a mixed orientation marriage have a goal of creating and maintaining a successful marriage, outside voices may make that difficult journey. Some people will share stories of failed mixed orientation marriages and tell those in mixed orientations marriages they are not being authentic, not living their truth, or fooling themselves. These messages create unnecessary doubt. Um, during the summer of 2019, a husband and father in a prominent Utah family came out as gay and his marriage ended. 
I was sad to see his marriage end. Many observers had negative comments on social media and elsewhere, but as we strive to not judge, we follow the counsel of Elder Uchtdorf, who teaches, quote, stop it. It's just that simple. We simply must stop judging others and replace the judgmental thoughts and feelings with hearts full of love for God and all of his children. God is our father. We are his children. We're all brothers and sisters. I don't know exactly how to articulate this point of not judging others with sufficient elegance, passion, and persuasion to make it stick. I can quote scripture. I can expound doctrine. And I'll even quote a bumper sticker I saw recently. It was attached to the back of a car whose driver appeared to be a little rough around the edges, but the words on the sticker caught my, taught an insightful lesson. It read, don't judge me because I sin differently than you. So you've heard that quote, um, Colby. And, uh, you know, I don't have any answers here, listeners. It's just the reality of Colby's journey. And I, I extend a lot of grace to Colby for just trying to do the best he could being gay and serving, joining the church, serving a mission, helping others under Christ, um, being sort of the anchor of his family when it came to the church and the added burden of just trying to keep your family together and the joy you saw when your mother came through the veil, your love of the temple, your love of your family, really complicated family situations around you. And just this added burden of going on a mission and also sort of being responsible for your family back there. Then you go on and with, I think, faith and courage and hoping that this marriage would work, that these feelings would gradually lessen. And there's probably stories you've heard or hoped or even some church leaders that said they might go away or they would go away. We certainly have said that in the past. We don't say that now. And so then you came to the point where you recognize that this is a really difficult emotional road for you that's not sustainable. You knew about the suicide of your father and your grandfather. You knew because of the pain that created in so many people's lives, you didn't want to go down that road. You knew the impact that would be on your daughter and your family and your mom, who you have a great relationship. So you shared with your wife, you're gay. And and I guess you knew that could end your marriage and it has. And so what do we do, listeners? We just wrap our arms around everybody and and resist the tendency to sort of find a villain or a bad guy and try to build empathy and compassion and understanding for everybody in their unique life journey. And to me, that's, you know, it's, it's somewhat easy to live the gospel when everything's going well, but when complicated situations come up, what, what's the best way to live the gospel and love and support and, and just recognize the reality of some people's lives is different than our own. Um, so I'll turn it back to you. I'd, I'd love to just have you continue to tell your feelings about the future, your relationship with your heavenly parents, what your hopes are, advice to other people, anywhere you'd like to go, Colby. Um, so I work at a treatment center here in Utah where the majority of the students there are LGBTQ and all of, all of them know um, they've expressed their gratitude to have a grown up, an adult be so open and vulnerable about his life, my life. Um, they have really helped me embrace this and they all they come from all walks of life all different types of people in different situations and they're all teenagers 
And I look, I look at them and I know that they're going through some really difficult times being in a treatment center, but the level of resiliency that each of them go through to make it through their lives at this point gave me a lot of comfort. And my hope for myself is to, to kind of shift from a school counselor because I have that degree to shift from school counseling to clinical mental health and specifically work with LGBTQ youth in the church. Because I know a lot of them feel alone and a lot of them feel hopeless or don't have a voice or contemplating suicide. And I may just be one person, but I want to make a difference. And that's where I feel I can do that. And, and be a support. I know I'm doing this now by sharing my story, but I, I not, my story is not going to end here. And neither is a youth who's struggling right now. And my future is bright. I'm a 36-year-old man. I have a lot to live for. And I have a lot ahead of me. And I have a relationship to nurture and maintain with my six-year-old daughter. I dedicate this to her. Because she deserves to have a dad who can be strong and still be sad and be grateful and still have difficult times. And I know that by doing this, we're going to have a pretty solid relationship as she continues to grow. And I have no ill intent to keep her away from the church. I don't have any ill intent to speak negatively against it. That's for her to choose for herself when she becomes that age to do so. My right now, my goal, my determination is to continue to be positive for her and work with her through difficult times in her own life because she's going to have them. And at some point down the road, I will tell her my story and why, why her mom and dad are separated and getting a divorce because she deserves to know. She deserves to know what's going on and my story. Yeah, that's my hope. I love things that bring hope. I love that you have hope. And I love that you sharing your hope gives hope for others that may be listening that don't have hope. Hope is one of the greatest gifts we can give each other. I love where you're taking your lived experiences and saying, this is where I can help. I've got this master's degree. It's kind of in a sister field that's easily transferable or transitions into the area you're moving into. And the steady, mature, seasoned voice that you can give to younger LGBTQ youth. I recognize a lot of them are in their treatment center, not because it's so hard to be LGBTQ that you often just turn to things to sort of numb the pain of this experience and you get hooked on things. You need treatment. Um, So I think there's some nuance there that I'm learning just the bottom of the iceberg 
and how sometimes what we see at the top of the iceberg is to deal with stuff at the bottom of the iceberg, but good people like you can help them deal with stuff at the bottom of the iceberg and make more thoughtful decisions. And um, I call that the wounded healer. We talk about that on a lot of the podcast is the wounded healer sort of knows specific deserts. They can authentically lead people out of the desert because they know the desert and they've walked out of it. And so there's a lot of wounded healing. There's tremendous wounding in your story, Colby. And I, it's not your fault. None of, I mean, you've made mistakes and I've made mistakes and you don't want me to sort of put you on a pedestal, but there's so much of your story that is not your fault, but incredible wounding that's come into your life that's not your fault. And... uh, I think you've walked this road with incredible grace and courage and wanting to do the right thing. I think your older self, if he could talk to you, <laughs> you know, your 51-year-old self, will add 15 onto roughly what you are, 50-year-old self, would talk about this period of life. This is me partly talking to you listeners and would say this was a brutal year for you. It was a hellish year. And, but it probably in some ways needed to happen. You probably needed to come out to know what would happen. And your wife needed that information to be able to process her best path forward and your best path forward. And even though that wasn't your hope that your marriage were end, I hope your 50-year-old self recognizes that that conversation needed to happen. And it's resulted in good things for both of you. Um, but it's not what you hoped when you first got married that this would be happening. But I. I say that, listeners, to give hope to all of us that our older selves would be very compassionate to us right now as we're dealing with complicated things and doing our best with the information and the experiences we have. I would also hope that your six-year-old daughter in 15 years, and she's especially an adult and has the sort of ability to understand your journey with maybe adult eyes that she doesn't have right now, that will have a great relationship with you. And you will be able to be, and you will be, you know, right from the beginning, um, continue to be a wonderful influence for her. There's another podcast that goes on, listeners. It's a great podcast. I think it's called Husband-in-Law. It's a, it's a, you may be aware of that, Colby. It's a, I like that story. It's a, a man and a woman that were married. He came out as gay. They did divorce. She remarried. But the three of them are very close and they do this podcast together. And they have a child in there that they're kind of all involved with, with this child. And it's just the reality of their situation. And they've decided to keep the family circle together. Now, I'm not saying that works for every family in every situation, but I do, I do admire the three of them, you know, doing the very best they can. It's not what any of them thought would happen, but they're not sort of throwing bombs at the other partners. Um, They're trying to just bring everybody together for the benefit of that child. And I think that's a good thing. And I think it's good for all three of them individually. Um, So I, I'd love you to talk about your tattoo. If you're okay, I love tattoos that bring hope. And I'd love you to talk about your mom. Your mom's been through the ringer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you have this wonderful relationship with your mom. It sounds like she was perhaps the first person you came out to, but talk about your mom and even your grandma and coming out to your grandma. So there's three things or anything else you want to talk about. So three weeks ago, 
and I've been contemplating getting a tattoo for the longest time. Um, but again, the stigma that comes behind tattoos and members getting tattoos and all of that, that falls underneath. Um, I, I made this, this decision that took a while to finally come to grips with that it's something I needed to do personally. Um, so it's a Harry Potter reference. It's of the Deathly Hollows. Um, there's a story within Harry Potter that talks about the Deathly Hollows. You have the Cloak of Invisibility, the Resurrection Stone, and the Elder Wand. And each represents, for me, uh, the Cloak of Invisibility of hiding this part of my life for so long and just keeping it quiet. If people know, they'll understand what this refers to, not to go into detail, but just cloaking my true self, just hiding. Uh, the resurrection stone represents bringing somebody back, obviously resurrecting somebody. And I wanted to, in some way, bring back my dad because he and I had never had a really good relationship. Um, I didn't meet him until I was nine, lived with him in middle school, and our relationship was really, really intense and not in a positive way. Um, the other one, so the way the tattoos, I can see it, so it's upside down when people look at it. So I look at it all the time, and the other one is pointing. It's on my left or my right forearm, and it's pointing the direction that I want to go, that I need to go into. At the bottom of the tattoo, it says, always. Uh, there's a line in, in the book and in the movie where a character named Severus Snape, Professor Snape, he has always loved Harry's, Harry's mom. He has always had a connection with her. And he will always, he's always wanted to be with her. And it was kind of a complicated story anyway. Um, but at the end of the word always, I have a semicolon. Uh, the semicolon represents a pause like a pause in my story. I've had pauses where I've thought about what next, what do I need to do next? But my story is going to continue because I don't want to follow in the footsteps or the path that my dad and dad, my granddad took. Um, I don't blame them. There have been times where I've angry at them because of what, what they did, but that's their story but my story is not going to, not going to end where I'm at today. Um, actually speaking of my mom, she picked out the design. Um, it's on my social media so people can follow me. Um, so when I look at this, uh, my mom's a part of it because she picked it out and I will always, always cherish the relationship that I have with her. I'm her oldest and only son, and we have a tight bond. We're both very emotional people. Um, so one of us cries, the other cries right along, and it could be about anything. And she has definitely been through a lot of challenges, through a lot of abuse, physically, emotionally, mentally. A lot of that was during my childhood as a young boy. She has been through... Uh, two divorces and separations. Um, she's full of love and kindness and acceptance. 
And when I came out to her, I was, I wasn't afraid, but I was more just like, what are you going to do with this now, mom? Like, here you go. Here's this information. Um, but she has been so loving and what I needed and what I need still. And I'm 36. Everyone needs their mom. And I'm grateful for her. I'm grateful for the life that she has lived herself. I'm grateful for the life that she has given me. Uh, the constant example that she sets for me every day. I'm just, we're going through a lot of crap right now. Um, a lot of stuff, a lot of emotions, but somehow she just, she manages to be positive and she's going through her own health issues herself. And I have to remind her to like take time for herself and not be so worried about me, but she does. That's who she is. That's who I am. We're pretty much one in the same, but she has been so supportive in going on a mission and getting married at 21. And this transitional phase in my life now. And I don't know. I, I, I could literally go on for days, just expressing that gratitude and love for my mom. Um, I know that she'll always be there for me. Talk about and your grandma. You've come oh, up gosh, to her. That, that woman. I assume she's in her seventies, eighties. Yeah. She will be 79 next year. Um, being the the only grandson in the family, right in the middle of all these, my cousins and my sisters, uh, from a young age, she would call me her little prince, and I would get ridiculed and and made fun of by all my female cousins. Maybe it was jealousy. I'm just going to chalk it up to jealousy, and it's fine. Um, and I remember the weekend I came out after I came out to my wife, I went to visit my mom and grandma. And as soon as I got to my grandma's house, I knelt by her as she's sitting in her rocking chair. And I look at her and I just, the floodgates just like the Hoover dam just burst open. And I look at her and as a like, grandma, I have something to tell you. And I'm just like trying to like will in all of these tears. And I looked at her and I said straight to her, I said, grandma, your little prince is gay. <laughs> and she kind of looked at me puzzled, kind of like, what just well, like, what came out of your mouth? And, uh, and then she just gave me the sweetest smile. And I like knelt up and she, gosh, the hug that she gave me, was years and years of so much love for her family and for me specifically. And she's from a small town in Utah and they're very, you know, it's a small town. It comes with a small town mindset oftentimes, but not this woman. No, she, she embraces it and we talk about it and she just, I'm, I don't, I'm, never had to be afraid to have a kind of open conversation with my grandma the way that I did that day. That's great. And I love these stories of just how much it means to you to have people that 
means so much to you in your life except this part about you and how healing that can be just to know people that you love continue to love you and wondering all these years how would your mom respond how would your grandma respond if they knew this part about you and that often listeners can put people in a much better space emotionally Uh, my advice to people in Colby's situation I don't think Colby particularly needs this advice but um, I had a therapist sort of teach me about storming. It's sort of, it's a storming time when um, th- all these new relations, the, sort of the past has changed and the new isn't quite set and you're in this storming time where there's just a lot of, I don't know what the right word is. And my advice in those situations to try to go slow. And I think you're doing that. You're moving forward, but I think you're trying to do this in the very best way you can. and. Um, keeping a lot of doors open as far as your future. And I think that's advice maybe to younger people where you've got to figure out your future right now or exactly know how this is all going to work out. But I think it's okay to just go slow sometimes. And I think that you can make really thoughtful decisions as you go slow. And um, your heavenly parents love you. They will continue to guide you. I had a question that came to my mind. I get these questions, Colby. I don't know where they come from, but <laughs> I don't know if you if you were up in the pre-mortal life and were given two life paths, one being born straight into a fifth-generation LDS family um, with lots of emotional and financial stability and and just kind of a easier way forward with a lot of doors open or born into your situation... <laughs> Um, with just like a lot of people are born into very difficult family situations with good people, but complicated situations, you're born gay. Um, you know, my, I guess what I hope is that in the next life or at 90, that God could take you to the top of the mountain and say, this is what your life would have been like if you were born in that first situation straight, um, and born where you were, and this is what you're able to accomplish in your life because of the road that you were born into, and the lives you're able to bless, and the people you're able to reach, and I don't know if it works that way, but I would hope that, you know, God at some point will take you to the top of a mountain and help you see um, the totality of your life, most of it's still ahead of you in your 30s, and what you're able to accomplish in this earth life, especially helping other people feel love and acceptance and feel the hope that the gospel and Jesus Christ brings. But there may be a lot of times in your life where you just were born straight <laughs> into the type of family I just described. So it, that's me sort of talking maybe too much, but any thoughts on that, Colby? I find it really interesting because Back earlier, when you asked me what I, the conversation I would have with myself after these last 15 years, this question, I've already had, I've had an experience like the one you described, um, being in the pre-mortal life. So years ago, I read a book called The Two Brothers. Um, it was written by an Elias author. I don't remember who it was. But in the book, this family, they're preparing for the Grand Council in Heaven. 
where Heavenly Father presents the plan of salvation. And at one point in the book, uh, one of the brothers in the story couldn't decide who to follow. And he had this opportunity uh, to meet with Lucifer. And Lucifer um, showed him what his life would be like. Like somehow he had this ability to show this, this younger man his life on earth. But I remember reading that part and I thought to myself what it would have been like if I was up in heaven and after listening to the plan of happiness, um, having this opportunity to meet with my heavenly father. I'm a very visual person. So I, I, in my mind, I saw entering his throne room and he presented to me my life. And then what that was going to be like. And obviously we, you know, when, when we believe we know that when we go through the veil, all of that's just kind of washed away in a sense. So obviously I don't know specifics, but as I contemplate that visual, that visual in my mind of what that would be like, I feel that he told me that this was what my life was going to turn out to be. And I have this firm belief that this is why I'm here. I believe that Heavenly Father lovingly explained to me what the challenges were going to be like that I was going to face. Um, the choices that I was going to make right or wrong. Um, education, passions, uh, commitments. And that if I wanted to come to earth and live, live that, that I had to be willing to accept all of it. So I feel in my heart that this is exactly why I'm here. And with my story, I'm not to be afraid to share it because someone who's listening or someone I come in contact with my future career, wherever that leads me and not meaning this in, in any sort of boastful way, but to change people's lives. That's my mission on this earth. I'm just so moved by that. Colby. It would be wonderful to close my eyes and just have you come back on my screen in 15 years from now. And your hair might be gray. Then. What, what hair? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and to have you tell more of the story, I think you're going to be okay. And I think your best days are ahead of you, Colby. I don't know how that works with you and the church. And um, I'll just leave that, you know, 
I feel my role as a Latter-day Saint is just to love and support you and leave any judgment about your future, the specific path you choose, just trust you to know your best way forward. You've been making good decisions your whole life. Any concluding thoughts for our listeners, Colby? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I first just want to express my gratitude for this opportunity because um, just the way it fell into place literally two and a half months after I came out just how uh, encapsulating this is for me because it's, I mean, I have those moments where I'm going to probably sit down with my 15 year old self again and just kind of like an, like a, like an exercise, a processing exercise, like a therapeutic kind of thing. Um, but this gives me so much hope knowing that so many people are going to listen to this and it's not like a popularity thing. It's, it's a story that needs to be shared. And I feel so much love and appreciation for sharing my story. Um, but one thing that I want to say is whether or whoever is in a place in a position in their life similar to mine or not, or a family member who has a son or a daughter or another husband or even a wife who is in this situation is to be full of grace and love and acceptance and be mindful of you come across to a situation like this because in some way someone is hurting. Um, I've hurt for a long time and I just made it work. Um, and whether an individual is angry with God or giving up religion entirely Just know that, like I do, that I know that I have a loving Heavenly Father and I have a Savior who loves me. I know that through His sacrifice, He did this for me. And I still have a testimony of the atonement it's real and I have felt it on numerous occasions throughout my life and at some point yeah I may return to church I don't know but I feel that regardless of returning to full activity or not I still have a heavenly parents and a savior who is there supporting me and in this moment, looking down at me, and I feel that they're proud of me for doing this and fulfilling my mission and my purpose here in life. So that's my hope for other people is to embrace 
whatever it is that you need to embrace and know that there are people who love you and support you. And that's all that matters is to just continue to live your life the best way you know how and to be authentic and not be afraid. Not be afraid to live your life unapologetically. Thank you, Colby Majors. Thank you for the podcast, for your good heart, for your concluding testimony, and the courage to share it, to help others. This is coming from a point of love and understanding and wanting to help people. You've got a good, tender, humble heart. And so on behalf of our listeners, Colby, thank you for sharing your story. And thank you, our listeners, for listening to this podcast and sharing it with others so we can better support each other and come together as the same human family. This is Richard Osler signing off on another episode. <laughs>